We are continuing, obviously, with our study on the kingdom of God. And, and for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at the fulfillment of all the things that we looked at, all the way back from where God made this, this covenant with Abraham, all the way through, we looked at, we've looked at this and we've seen that the plan of God is his kingdom, ultimately heaven, right? The gospel, as Jesus said, the gospel is the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. So the gospel in of itself, salvation, is a part of the kingdom, right? The kingdom is ultimately who God is, who Christ is, who is going to reign forever. And so really, the, the full flow of scripture isn't about us. It is not a man-centered book. It is a God-centered book. But even from creation, God in, in his divine sovereignty and what he chose and what he wanted, he created us in his image to have a relationship with us. So that's, that's the, the huge macro view, right? But now we're going to look at how this is, is being concluded. Um, I want to just give you a little warning in advance. We're going to talk about a subject today that uh, I am just going to be touching on, okay? It's, it's we're looking at more of the larger topic, not this one specific thing. We can go down a hundred rabbit holes here, and some of you probably have, and, you know, Bless you, but, but we're not going to be doing that this morning, okay? But as we, as we take a look at, at uh, this subject, we're going to first kind of introduce where, we're, where we have been. We've already learned that Jesus fulfilled a number of the prophecies of the Messiah. And when I say already fulfilled a number of them, you might ask yourself, well, wait a minute, he filled them all, right? He filled all of them up to the point of his living here. But there's more to come, and that's really kind of what we're talking about. There are still future things that that's need to be fulfilled. His message was that he was establishing the kingdom, but he wasn't fulfilling his establishment of an earthly kingdom. We'll talk more about that in a little bit later. The earthly kingdom was foretold, but Jesus didn't come um, <clears throat> first, uh, the first time to establish this aspect of the kingdom. And that's what he was explaining to everybody. Remember, they wanted this Messiah that was going to start this earthly kingdom that they had been promised misconceptions. We'll talk about that in a moment as well, but that's not why Jesus came the first time. Instead, uh, he specifically fulfilled what was foretold about the Messiah's work of redemption. We also spent some time considering God's prophecies of a people who were not God's own. That's, that's us. That's the Gentiles. A theme runs through the covenants and the prophecies that God would choose a people for himself who were not Jews. Uh, that doesn't mean that he hasn't chosen them. It means that we are grafted in. And we are now at the point in our study where we consider the future complete fulfillment of the kingdom of God. And today our subject will be the millennium. Um, as we kind of talk about that for just a moment, and, and, and I have this title very specific, what is the millennial kingdom? That's what it is. It is the kingdom. A lot of times we might say the word millennium, but it is the millennial kingdom. Although for shortness, I probably will use the other phrase. But anyway, this is the 1,000 year, hence millennium, earthly reign of Christ. The 1,000 year earthly reign of Christ. So here's where we're going to, you know, kind of skip these theological rocks a little bit, right? Hit the surface, uh, not go real deep on all these, but there are three views 
And so I, I want three major views, and I want us to understand those a little bit just so that we can appreciate the view that, that, that we take as Scripture from Scripture. Um, I'm not going to be highly critical of these other things, but you know me, sometimes I get a little snarky about this. But anyway, uh, we, have, we have three views of the millennium. The first one is what's called the amillennial view. I am not going to spend a lot of time on this view, mainly because this view really doesn't do a whole lot with Scripture. Uh, those who hold to this say that there is no true 1,000-year reign of Christ. They view it as allegory. And just as a reminder, allegory is a type of literature in which what is written is only symbolic. It's kind of like a parable, okay? And so everything that we see about the kingdom, meaning the earthly kingdom, is allegorical. It's, it's, it's really more in story form. There's meaning there, but it's not literal, most, of, most who believe that the millennium is allegory would see much of the book of Revelation as symbolism. So it doesn't, it does not just what we read, it spills over into other areas. Amillennialism uh, considers the 1,000 years and any references to Christ's kingdom on earth as the time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. So that 1,000 years was really just a long time, okay? That's, that's how they see it. So for the amillennial, there is no literal earthly reign of Christ. We're not looking ahead to that. We're simply looking for his coming. Okay? So that's, that's that view. And you say, well, you know, give us some scriptural. That's the whole point. Scripture is allegory. So there isn't anything to really pull from that. The next one, however, is post-millennial view. Post, past, after, Right? The church will, uh, and, and this, this means that Christ will come after the millennium. We'll talk about our view in just a minute, but the church, uh, according to what the post-millennial believes, the church will influence the world's culture, politics, and economy until Christ rules the world through the church. Did you get that? Christ will rule the world through the church. This is not going to be a direct rule. Christ then returns to create the new heavens and the new earth. So the church must dominate the earth before Christ's return. That's what they believe. Now, before we get into some passages, I just want to note real quick, um, a, a person who has just recently passed away but, but kind of uh, was a proponent of this was Pat Robertson. Um, he talked a lot about getting involved in culture and politics and other things because we have to Christianize these things because then we can, um, in, and I'm not trying to be, you know, like, I mean this in a positive way, but, you know, we're going to take over the world, so to speak. That's the idea, okay? So this Christian influence involves everything. It's not just merely a spiritual thing where we, uh, uh, engage people with the gospel and they respond in faith. All right. Passages that make up the foundation of this view include the fact that the church has replaced Israel. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. Now again, that's these folks' view. I'm not saying this is what this passage says. I'm saying that's what they say it says. So the church has replaced Israel. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own spiritual people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. 
who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So here we have this people group that were not chosen by God, but are now chosen by God. And now we are to turn around and take this, proclaim his praises, right? Take the gospel out and, and overcome the world. All right, that's, that's the idea uh, behind that passage. And then even the Great Commission, which I want to refresh your memory on, Matthew 28, 19 and 20 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So making disciples of the whole world is what fulfills God's promise to Abraham. That is their viewpoint. That, that when we go out and make disciples, it is going to continue, and we are going to make disciples of the whole world. Um, Genesis 12, 1 through 3 is also a part of their thinking. It says, Now the Lord had said to Abraham, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house. This should sound familiar to you, by the way. This goes back to this whole foundation of the kingdom. To a land that I will show you, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So that last line in particular is what the post-millennialist, not easy to say, will, will, will focus on and say, this is what we are fulfilling. All right? So again, we're not going deep on this. There's lots of ramifications in regards to things. I, I, I use an illustration sometimes, and, and I basically call it, call it a, a train, right? So we have a theological train. There's always something that is the engine that's pulling the train, okay? So let's just say right now it's post-millennial view, right? That's, that's, that's what we're focusing on. There's always other things that that view is pulling behind it. You see what I mean? So if we believe, and we shouldn't, <laughs> if, we, if we were to believe that it's up to us to usher in the kingdom, that, and, and, and look, this is, like I say, I, I'm not trying to get too snarky here, but if God is watching, his, is looking at his watch and looking at things and waiting for us, to complete what we are intended to do, waiting for us to be obedient and, and in essence, turn around and, and disciple the world and have enough influence where the entire world is Christian. Not that everybody is a Christian, but that it's a Christian world. And that's what we're waiting for before Christ comes back, right? Then what might your view of salvation be? Is that a man-centered thing or is that a God-centered thing? You see where I'm going? So now we have another, another uh, car behind that engine of post-millennialism. And we can go on and on. So that's the problem. There's, there's a, a, some ramifications, obviously, to, to what people believe. So just real quick, we're going to talk about some passages that tend to go against this view, just so we can understand. The first one is... Uh, going back to Matthew chapter 13, Matthew chapter 13, and, th and that is again something that we looked at as we looked at the uh, uh, different aspects of the kingdom. And this one is um, uh, the parable of 
the wheat and tares. I am going to be reading for you the interpretation that Jesus gave of the wheat and tares. And again, it's probably something that, that will come to mind if you were able to be here when we talked about this. I'm going to start Matthew 13, starting at verse 36. It says, Then Jesus sent the multitudes away and went to, into a house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And, and he answered and said, He who sows the seed is the Son of God. I'm sorry, Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun, and the kingdom of their in the kingdom of their father, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, does that not echo what we saw in Revelation 19 and 20? That Christ was going to come back and judge, right? So that echoes that. Here's the problem. If, if we're talking about a post-return of Christ, and Jesus here is saying, you're going to have the wicked and the righteous together until the end of the age, we got a problem, right? Now, they would say that they're unsaved, but the point is, he's saying you're not going to have this, this huge majority to where you're going to rule the world. That's not what it's about at all, all right? So that's the first thing. Second one, Matthew seven thirteen through 14. The narrow way to salvation. The narrow way way to salvation enter by the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction there are many who go by it because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life and there are few who find it now what we know about what jesus says is there are times when he's talking from a human perspective and there's times when he's talking obviously from from a a god perspective right so here he's he's explaining you know as, as people, from our perspective, from a human side of things, many are going to choose what? To not have God in their life, to not respond to him in faith, to not want to follow him. So how do we then somehow justify this worldwide influence when most people don't want to be his? All right? And then lastly... And this, this one—it's almost like they, they get worse for this argument, you know, for this view as we go. But um, uh, Matthew twenty-four, verses four through fourteen—you should be pretty close to there. Matthew twenty-four, verses four through fourteen. I could have just taken a couple of verses out of here, but I think it's a healthy context for us to take a look at here. Matthew twenty-four, beginning in verse four. And then Jesus answered and said to them. Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, uh, but the end is not yet. For a nation will rise up against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famine, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. 
and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Do you see the word many there? Okay, right. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in, the, in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. So what do we see here? We, we actually see things getting worse up until things are completed. Not getting better. And they're certainly not dependent upon us. Okay? So, again, we, we dipped a little more deeply in this, but practically speaking, there really is very little difference between the amillennial and postmillennial views. They, they, they both kind of look at it as, as just this um, period of time until Jesus comes back again, where we are going to somehow uh, have this, this kingdom on earth, and yet he's not going to be here. Now, don't get me wrong. We are in the kingdom, but we're talking about a specific earthly kingdom. They ignore all of that. So now we're going to look at the premillennial view, the view that Christ comes before the millennium takes place and then rules as king for 1,000 years on the earth in the millennium. Now, we've already read this, but I want us to go back to uh, Revelation 19 just to refresh our minds again. We're not going to look at that entire passage this time, but just verses 11 through 16. And again, I understand there's some judgment things that are involved here, but try to pick out the idea of, of what is taking place and see some of those identifying markers. We see a thousand years happen multiple times uh, here and in, in, well, maybe not here, but in um, uh, chapter 20 especially. It says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now, certainly, we know this is Christ, obviously, right? And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he would strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness, of, and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So we see that he's, he's coming. He's, he's judging. There's something active that is taking place. This isn't at the end. This is at the beginning of the uh, millennial period. Revelation 24 says this. By the way, uh, just as far as slides go, Many times, this, is, this accounts for three verses. This is one verse. Right? There's a lot there. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for 1,000 years. Amen. All right? So we see him getting ready for battle. Obviously, it's, it's John seeing the future, God revealing this to him. He goes and he, and he uh, 
executes judgment, but then we see that he is going to reign for a thousand years. Again, that's where we get this term, millennium. And then Isaiah 11.4 says this, But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. So as we kind of take what that says and look ahead, yes, it's a little more of a fuller uh, uh, explanation in Revelation, but this is the echo of what, of what uh, uh, John was revealed. That we have Christ, we see how, how he is ruling, and we also see how he has judged. Now we're going to develop this a little bit further, but before we do, it's important for us to consider, I think, really a, a general methodology of God. All right, so I just want to look at a few things that should be pretty obvious to us, but I want to draw some conclusions from them. How has God revealed how he operates? Right? Now, I'm not saying, what is the mind of God? Okay, that's, <laughs> in Romans, he tells us, you can't know that, right? right? It's not for you. But as far as what he has revealed to us, right? So here's some examples. The flood. The scriptures treat the Genesis flood as a literal, catastrophic judgment upon sin that took place back in Genesis, right? When, when he's referring to it, even when Jesus refers to it, he refers to it as a historic event, not some spiritual thing that took place. Yes, it was spiritual, but the point is, is that it's not just some, I can't think of the right word that we just had here. Figurative, yes, but um, allegory. Right, thank you. Both, thank you, both. All right, so, so it's, it, it's not allegorical. And we'll continue with the same thing, the Abrahamic covenant. It was and still is a literal promise made to a real person. It, it's not over time been spiritualized to where, yeah, we're all like sons of Abraham and... We're going to all live together. No, it's, there's some very specific things that he talks about. How about the Exodus? The Exodus was very real. Multiple times God directly refers back to the Exodus as well as many other biblical authors. And by biblical authors, I mean those who wrote the books. We know that God inspired them, but those who wrote the books, there's many references back to this historic thing and what it meant. Sometimes they make application, but they don't spiritualize it. They don't allegorize it. And then the Messiah and salvation. We know the Jews, prior to Messiah coming and at the point of his coming, struggled with their expectations of who the Messiah was going to be. Maybe a better way of saying this is they struggled with who they thought the Messiah should be. Right? Even today, many Jews see Messiah as only a symbolic concept of God preserving the nation Israel. That, that's what they see it as. They see it as a secular thing. Okay? God's primary method of communication is direct, understandable, real revelation. The historic events that took place in time and space, people were involved in it, and that is how it stood and that's how it's been treated. Now, again, there are times when some of these events are turned around and applied 
in different ways. But they're never designed to change what actually took place. All we're doing now is considering a future event. But as we've just mentioned a couple minutes ago, in the mind of God, it's already happened. Now, as we think of God's revelation, the greatest examples are God's word itself and Christ Jesus, the word made flesh, right? Those are the very expressions of God himself. So here's my question. Why would God's word about the millennium be any different? Now, understand, there is figurative language in the scriptures. But if you kind of follow my weird logic for a minute, it is literally something figurative written, right? It's not something that's written that we then somehow, ooh, I want to read into this and get something, you know, bizarre and wild from it. Okay? That's, that's not what it's about. It's about understanding it, taking it for what it is. So, for example, when the scriptures that we read earlier said that a sword would proceed out of Jesus' mouth, that's figurative. He's not going to have a sword sticking out of his mouth. It is symbolic of what? The very real judgment that, that accompanies it. Okay? So that's just an example. All right. The primary reason for the millennium and Christ's return prior to the millennium is that the plain interpretation of Scripture communicates a real event that will take place within a defined span of time involving factual, identifiable characters tied to historic events, which fulfill the plan of God. Now, even for me, that was a mouthful. So let me rewind and read that one more time. The primary reason for the millennium and Christ's return prior to the millennium is that the plain interpretation of Scripture communicates a real event that will take place within a defined span of time. We, he, we see in the Revelation particularly over and over again, a thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years. God doesn't do that when we're talking about um, figurative language. It's inv it involves factual, identifiable characters. Christ, the saints, those who are going to be judged, and so on. It's tied back to historical events. We're going to see some of that in just a little bit, which then fulfill God's plan. Because what are we talking about? We're talking about the kingdom of God. Now we're talking about the kingdom of God on earth, the millennial kingdom where Christ is going to reign. Everything about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is bringing us to this direction. So this brings us really to the nature of the millennial kingdom. What's, what's it about? What's going to be happening? Something very interesting that I, I didn't really pick up on uh, directly until I studied this comes from Acts 1, 6 and 7. Therefore, when they had come together, so this is, this is them being with Christ now before he, he uh, goes back to heaven, right? This is after his resurrection. He's, he's revealed himself to people. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Now, <laughs> let me give you the uh, not-so-nice Scott Kiger version of this. What? What are you asking? I've explained this to you over and over again. Right? That would be my reaction. 
When are you going to get it, guys? So they still had these lingering things. Is it now? Now, now again, I, I'm not busting these guys too much because I probably am doing the same thing. But the, the, the point is they, they were so anticipating, right, what they had been taught all these years. They didn't realize, no, no, there, there's, there's a different there's a different way that God is going to bring about his kingdom. There's still some people that need to be a part of it. It's much bigger than what they were anticipating. So even they struggled, right? So now as we, as we think about um, uh, the kingdom itself, the millennium, it begins at the literal second coming of Christ to the earth to establish his kingdom. And we've already looked at that at Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. So I'm not going to go through that again, but we already saw that that is what is going to take place, that he is coming back, all right? The passage that uh, some attribute to the rapture is actually the separation of the wicked and the righteous, which happens after the tribulation as Christ returns to set up his earthly kingdom. We're going to look at that. Matthew 24, verses 37 through 41. Now, I'm going to date myself a little bit here. Back in the day when we had a lot of Christian films that were going on, um, I'm just going to say it, cheesy 1970s films. Um, you know, we were Christians. We were low budget, right? But they, they, there was a song that was sung, right? And, and it was called, I Wish We'd All Been Ready, right? And it references this passage. So I wish we'd all been ready because when Christ came back and the rapture took place, right? Some were taken, but some were left. Ah, you don't want to be left because then you're going to go through tribulation. But look at what this passage says. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. The coming of the Son of Man. Who's the Son of Man? Christ. So when Christ comes, it's going to be just like the days of Noah. By the way, that's a problem with our post-millennial view too, right? For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. They were living life, right? Until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in a field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at, at, at the mill. One will be taken, the other left. They're going to be doing everyday normal life. One will be taken, not taken to heaven, taken to judgment, destroyed. The other is going to be left to enter the kingdom. Wow. But Christ comes back first. <laughs> All right. That's what it says. Now, what's interesting, and this is a little tidbit I'm going to throw out here real quick. Um, one of the things, one of the things that, that we have in, in Scripture, in the book of Revelation, there's actually an extension that is, that is written, an extension of days after the tribulation. I, I believe that, that those extra days that are there are, are when the transition takes place. I mean, God can do what he pleases, right? But men are still men. And there's going to be a transition, which is where we get this. Okay, judgment's coming down now. And there's going to be two people doing the same thing, separated. What's the separation? Where they stand before Christ. Those who stay enter the kingdom. All right. 
We're also told that resurrected, raptured saints will reign with Jesus. 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 12. This is a faithful saying, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, we, he will also deny us. So those who persevere are going to reign with Christ. Romans 8, 17 says this, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Now, I believe that that is primarily a look at heaven, okay? But the reality is the kingdom on earth and us as, as resurrected saints, uh, we are going to be joint heirs with Christ, okay? We are going to receive everything that Christ receives. I don't understand it. Uh, please don't. Ask me to explain how we rule and reign with Jesus. I, I don't know how that's going to happen. But somehow he is going to use us to um, rule his kingdom. It's interesting that tribulation saints are included in this. We saw this in Revelation 20. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So those, those who were martyred during the tribulation, they are also going to be those who reign. They're specifically mentioned. So what will life be like in the millennium? Now, there are many passages that relate to this. Um, we're only going to look at a couple of them today, but Isaiah 27, Ezekiel 34, Hosea 1 and 2, Joel 3, they describe the millennial kingdom. And there's other passages as well. One of the problems that we have, which is why we're not going super deep into this, is because when you're talking about um, uh, prophetic language, there are times, and we don't understand this as Western thinkers, but in Eastern thinking, they, didn't, they weren't always worried about, you know, uh, flow and, and chronology and things like that. And sometimes things are a little mixed up, okay, which can make it difficult to, to figure out, okay, wait, 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 what, what, who are we talking about now? What are we talking about? Right, it, it happens, right? But in all of this, uh, and, and also there are times when prophecy fulfills something earlier on and then much later, okay? We even see that in some of the Messianic prophecies where there's some things that are said about David that David fulfilled, but also... His son, the, the one who was going to eventually come in his stead. So although we're only going to go through a couple passages, these have similar descriptions of Christ's earthly kingdom. So let's go through some of those now. Turn with me back to Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65. And we're going to start in verse 17. Isaiah 65, verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as, as a rejoicing, and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who was not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die uh, 
For the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and, and another inhabit. Nor, uh, they shall not plant and another eat. That's what happens sometimes when they were being judged, right? Here they've got their vineyards planted. They, they, they have, their, they have their, their, their towns built. And they were taken over because of their, their, uh, their disobedience. It's not going to happen anymore, right? For as the days of a tree shall be the days of my people, and my elect shall... Long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble. For they shall be the descendants of the blessed and of the Lord, and their offspring with, with them. It will come to pass that before they call, I will answer, and while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. So I just need to cover one thing here. I want you to keep, you know, put, put that in your banks, right, your memory banks there, what this was all about. But there are several views of this verse, verse 17. Behold, I create new heavens and new earth. One says that the reference to the new heavens and new earth are simply an announcement that the Lord would create a new heavens and new earth. And then that, that's plausible. Another proposes that this is merely hyperbole, that it's, that it's kind of giving a little bit of an exaggerated language that this kingdom that he, that he is having on earth, the millennium, it's a new heavens, a new earth. One more view concludes that the word new refers to all that we have just read regarding the millennial kingdom. In other words, everything that's contained here, everything that we looked at in, in Revelation, that's what is new. So the best explanation I can give you is that we need to avoid taking what is plainly stated in the New Testament and retrofitting it back. We're talking about the creation of the new heavens and new earth retrofitting it back to Isaiah. I believe this is a reference to all that the Lord would do for his people in the millennium. Now remember, what takes place prior to the millennium? The tribulation. What is the millennium going to be like in comparison to the tribulation? It's going to be brand new. It's going to be completely different. And that, I believe, is the idea here. All right? So I didn't want you to get... Um, distracted by that because here's the thing it says right in here people are going to be born and people are going to die does that happen in heaven no so it's not after the new heavens and new earth these things can happen because there's too many things that that are not going to be a part of our heavenly uh, home all right so now let's turn to isaiah chapter 11 i know we got a lot going on here folks but i hope you're with me isaiah 11 i'll be reading for you verses 1 through 12 Isaiah 11, 1 through 12. And there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. If you remember, we talked about these references to the Messiah, right? And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Now let's pause here just for a minute. 
This judgment is not judgment for doing something wrong. This is the idea of justice, that type of judgment, okay? So just so you understand that. So let's go on. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the, the, the belt of his waist. We saw that before. And the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Is that how it is today? Right? Anybody ever watch some of those documentaries? It's ugly out there, right? Okay, but check this out. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. I just got to say this. When it says shall play by the cobra's hole, it actually means have this enjoyable playtime. With what? A cobra? That's, that's the idea. A little baby. <laughs> you know, right? A cobra. Okay, let's keep on going. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. It shall come to pass on that day that the Lord shall set his hand against again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Elam and Shinar, from Hamath and the islands of the sea. And he will be a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So, so he is going to gather his people back. There is going to be this national renaissance in a lot of ways, right? So real quick, I just want to remind us Everything that we're talking about is the fulfillment of the covenants that God made. This is going way back, folks. And some of you, if you hadn't joined us yet, we were back in Colossians. But I'm going to give you the snapshot here. We had the Abrahamic covenant. And the basics of the Abrahamic covenant are this. God's promised Abraham. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you bless. I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to give you a seed, an offspring. He repeated the same thing to David. Slightly different. The land and the blessing were pretty much the same, except there was a personal accentuated blessing for David. But the seed was still from Abraham through David, now specific to him and his lineage that would then rule and reign forever. The new covenant, which is Christ himself, he still has the promise of land and blessing and then him, the fulfilled one, the seed that is going to rule and reign forever including rule and reign here on the earth. What I want us to remember is this. They were going by the Mosaic Covenant, right? After Moses gave them the Ten Commandments and the law, that was what they were supposed to do, and God gave them a, a bilateral covenant, meaning there were two sides to it. If you do this, I will bless you. If you do this, you'll be cursed. As opposed to Abraham, David, and then through Jesus, this was all one-sided. This is what I'm going to do for you. You need to respond in faith. That's it. Okay? So that's the one that we're tracking because the Mosaic Covenant, you will not find seed. You will not find the Messiah coming from the Mosaic Covenant. It isn't there. 
The law was there to show us that we needed the Messiah. Okay? So here we have these promises given to us, these personal promises through Abraham, David, and Christ. And now they are all being fulfilled in, <clears throat> excuse me, they're being fulfilled in the um, uh, millennial kingdom. So now let's summarize these verses that I just read. King Jesus will descend from heaven. We saw that a couple of times. He will meet his enemies in battle in Israel and thoroughly destroy them. The enemies are there because at the end of the tribulation time, they, they, they want to take over. They want to rule the world. And they realize that as they're coming against Israel, now it's God. God's the one who's our enemy. We want to overthrow him. Uh, not going to happen, right? Satan at that point then will be bound, bound for a thousand years. The followers of Christ who survived the tribulation will enter the millennial kingdom. The resurrected saints will reign with Christ over the earth. Creation will be changed. Creatures that were once predators or dangerous will pose no danger to either fellow beasts or man. And as we saw, not even a helpless toddler playing with a snake is going to be hurt. That's going to be an interesting thing to see because I don't like snakes. Okay, particularly ones that can bite you and kill you, right? Jesus will judge with perfect judgment at the point of him instituting the kingdom and throughout the kingdom. Because remember, we're going to have people living and dying. We're going to have people that are not resurrected that are going to enter into the kingdom. They're going to have children. There's not going to be According to what we read, there's not going to be this, this, this sadness that we see in the world now, which is interesting. There is going to be an unprecedented peace. People will enjoy long life. Someone who dies at 100 is going to be considered a child. I'm, I'm a little over halfway there. I don't feel like a child. I haven't felt like a child for a long time. <laughs> okay. But you, you understand what I'm saying. I mean, that's the perspective here. They will build, by the way, how long is the, the, the millennium? A thousand years, right? They will build homes, plant crops, conduct business. That's what we read. And according to Isaiah 65, 22, the people will actually enjoy their work. So we see here that there, there is some aspect where, where we have part of the curse that has been lifted. Where under Christ, this is going to be an enjoyable place to be. Now, there is a reality that we read. I'm just going to touch on that for just a minute. And it's this, that there is still going to be some undercurrent of people who want to overthrow Jesus. And Satan is going to exploit that when he is released after those thousand years. I, I don't understand that. I don't understand. We're not talking about living in the world that we're living in now. We're talking about living in the world that we just explained. And apparently it's not going to be enough for these people. Now, take that away, right? Put that out of your minds now. Okay. So <laughs> what do we have then? We really have, and, I, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll stick with this uh, uh, um, slide that we have up here. The millennial kingdom as fulfillment. Okay. As we're thinking about the fulfillment that took place, or that, is, that will take place, I mean, 
we, we have, again, the Abrahamic covenant that took place. We have the, the Davidic covenant that took place. All these principles uh, that, that are here are fulfilled in this earthly kingdom. Uh, the, the, um, the kingdom is not about the church. The kingdom is really about the restoration of Israel. Did you see that multiple times that we read? Think about this. First of all, if, if you remember in our history, we have the northern kingdom that was taken away. They never came back. We have the southern kingdom. Uh, a lot of people say that it was, it was a, a Judah and one other tribe, but many times called Judah. They were taken away, restored, taken away, restored. Um, and, and now, and up, up until, you know, uh, recently, there was no Israel. Now they're back again. Okay, now they're a nation again, but not a nation that is dedicated toward God, right? I mean, they're Jews, they're God's chosen people, but they're very secular. They look a lot like our country. So what's the point of all of this? The point of all of this is, is that God still has a work to do, but it's the fulfillment of all these promises that he made to Abraham, that he made to David. That he was going to, and, and, and let's go back to the to the um, tribes. Those northern ten tribes are going to be restored. They're out there somewhere. God says He's going to bring them back. That is a literal people. That is literally going to take place. And obviously, again, we see that Judah as well is going to be restored. So as we see this fulfillment, I just want us to look at one passage here and. Thank you for your patience this morning. We've got one more kind of large passage I want you to look at in Ezekiel 37, starting in verse 21. Then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations wherever they have gone and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. They shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them. And then they shall be my people, and I will be their God. David, my servant, shall be king over them. Again, a reference to Christ. And they shall all have one shepherd, and they shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwelt, and they shall dwell there, they, their children, and their children's children forever, and my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make covenant of peace with them. And it shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. And the tabernacle, my tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The nations also will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel, whom my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. So this is the fulfillment to Israel. We're going to be a part of that. But Israel becomes center stage again as God brings his chosen people back to himself. So 
What does all this mean for us? There's not a lot of personal application here, folks, okay? So I'm not going to try to belabor this, but we need to acknowledge that future events can be difficult to interpret and understand because they are future, right? We, we, we can't go back and look at, okay, factually what happened. It hasn't happened yet. It's also harder to connect with things that haven't happened yet, right? Hey, uh, folks, you know, you're going to go on a vacation three months from now. Great. I'm still working right now. I'm looking forward to it, but there's not that personal connection as opposed to, man, we were just, you know, fill in the blank last week. It was wonderful. Let me tell you all about it. Right? But we cannot lose sight of this future event that will be a tremendous blessing. It's not going to be heaven, but it's going to be something that God wants to take place that God has planned to take place, that God is fulfilling his promises to his people, right? So let's turn that around just a little bit. Of course, we're waiting for the ultimate. We're waiting for heaven. But in God's plan, he wanted the millennial kingdom to motivate us to faithful service as we anticipate a time on earth unlike anything else that we've ever experienced. We're going to rule and reign with Christ. We're going to be part of his government, so to speak. Again, how that's all going to work, I don't understand. But we're going to witness God's promises unfolding in real time. And that's going to take place for a thousand years. And then, then he's going to recreate everything. New heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem, and we will forever be with the Lord. So the point of all of this is for us to understand God has a plan. We've seen that come to fruition even with us being grafted in with a a people that weren't his coming to him, to him choosing them. But he still has some things to take place. Next week, and I'm just going to tell you, I'm not going to try to speculate a huge amount here, okay? But we're going to talk about the final part of the kingdom which is the forever kingdom of God, heaven, all right? Um, that's one of the subjects. There's not a lot in Scripture, all right? So it's not like I'm going to try to fill a message with all kinds of speculation, but I do want to use our imagination a little bit, and that's what we'll be looking at next week. So, folks, I hope this encourages you. Part of what we need to understand is, man, if God has already done what he's done now, he is going to do what he says in the future, amen? amen. And we have that to look forward to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to be a faithful people to you. Lord, we want our friends, our family to enter this kingdom. We, if we were just to look at this world, we would be completely and totally deflated. We, we would be so discouraged. But Father, we can, we can take heart in understanding you do have a people that you have already singled out. We don't know who they are. We have the privilege of telling people about you and of leaving the business of saving to you. Not trying to be an army that's taking over the world politically and socially and all those other things. But simply being a little Christ to somebody else. Following you, living an example, helping them to see Jesus and to hear about Jesus.
So, Lord, we pray for our loved ones. We pray for our family members. We pray, Lord, for our co-workers. Lord, we pray for our enemies. That you would call them into your family, that we would see them in the kingdom. We know, Lord, that it's not because they're going to naturally want to do that. And even as things become more and more difficult, Lord, you tell us, persevere, endure, keep going, do my work. Father, give us strength and help us to strengthen one another. In Jesus' name, amen.